How'd you end up uh, working with Steely Dan? Uh, from what they told me was uh, Donald Fagan uh, saw something on me, went out and bought the uh, instructional, instructional videotape of mine, and, and, and it's, it hit him so hard that uh, he, he, he called up uh, uh, Walter, Walter lived in Hawaii somewhere, and he said, "I got, the, I got the drummer for us." And and of course, at that time, they were they were twenty one, twenty two years. And he's he tells Walter, well, "I found the drummer. If anybody, I got the drummer and the bass player. The bass player was going to be Tom Bonnie, and the drummer was going to be Dennis Chambers." All right, so and he says, "Well, look, yeah, I'm going to put something in the mail for you to see." He didn't tell him he was sending him the video. Walter could have easily sent somebody out in Hawaii to get the video. But he sent the video to Walter. Walter agreed that I was a drummer. So they somehow, management found me and they, they, they called me up. You know, you know what I would like to work with Stevie Dan. And I'm like, yeah, you know, because I got this, this, this serious history. I mean, I love Stevie Dan's music. And, uh, I remember, you know, my thing going back to them, it was like when I first heard Asia, uh, and Asia was like a big hit. Excuse me, I'm sorry. By the time, uh, you know, uh, you know, when it became a big, big mega hit, they would play it at a certain time in the morning, right before they go to school, right? So, and I take my shower and I go back to you know, my, my bedroom, and and uh and Fred had the radio on in Asia but you can set your watch at the, the play it. And then I look at the clock, sure enough, it was every day at the same time. And I run downstairs, you know, by the time I get down there and he I hear dad soloing out of the thing. And I was such big such a big fan and I knew I was listening to a masterpiece. And, and it was one of those songs I could listen to that thing all day, you know. And uh, I listened to the ride out, and then when it, you know, went to where I couldn't hear anymore, I would open the door, my sister and I run out the door, and uh, try to get the bus. And a lot of times, I would miss the bus, I end up running behind it. It's <laughs> like I would catch up with the bus, like, Maybe two or three stops later, and it all depends on how many people got on that bus for me to catch it. Um, so now here I am. I'm playing with Steve again. Now, um, when I realized I couldn't work with him, um, but I held on to the gig as long as I could, but I had this commitment with John McLaughlin. And I know I couldn't make it to it, but I didn't say anything to Stevie Dan at the time. Just praying that something something would happen for me that I could do this to it. And it didn't work out, so I had to call him back and like call the office back and say, hey, look, uh, I can't make this to it. You know, uh, I have a prior commitment that I have to honor. And they understood. And then they hired Peter Erskine. He was the drum of the band. And Peter and I, you know, we're friends. And um, um, 
I uh, someone on the tour uh, would be out on. I would get these faxes from the office, and they were asking me, you know, like when can I do the tour? Uh, it, you know, when I was getting these faxes, I already thought I was down and out of the whole thing. I did. So I gave him the, the, the window frame of the following year. You know, or I should have said, the upcoming year. Uh, at a certain month, I could do it from this to this. And thinking that they would just leave me alone. But they said, you know, the next fax I get back says, okay, I talked to Walter Donald, we'll take it. Mm-hmm. I, oh my God, you're serious. So I already, you know, then I had to call up John to make sure that John McLaughlin would make sure that that, that time frame we were going to have off is what it was. He said, yeah, we're going to definitely be off. So I told him what you know what, what was going down, and he was like, "Great, you know, like okay, man, that sounds great, you know, go out do the tour." And um, that was the first phone call I made was there. The second phone call I had to call Peter up and, and explain to him what had happened, and uh, because I wanted to make sure he knew, and if he had any weird feelings about it, then that wouldn't be the tour. And he was okay with it. He said, hey, man, maybe, you know, if you don't do it, then go get somebody else. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. You know, but they just want to make sure, you know, there's no bad feelings. It's not always no bad feelings. You know, you know, like, you know, if they, if they don't want me being there, then, you know, that's their right and it's their band. And, you know, he was working so much anyway, he could easily fall into doing something else with people. Well, it sounds like you worked it out, and they were level-headed about it. So, yeah. But the crazy thing was, they they uh, they, uh, they never told Peter straight up, and they went to Japan with Peter, and they had a, a farewell party. You know, they knew. I mean, Stephen Bennett had fulfilled their commitment with their tour, and they had a party for Stevie Dan, and that's when Peter found out. Um, outside of myself, he called him. He found out he wasn't going to do the drummer anymore. And it was a promoter. Somebody told told the promoter, and the promoter yelled out real loud, "What? Peter's being fired?" Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they said that some of the record had scratched across the record. It was dead silence. And you know, Peter already knew. So. And he played. Uh with Santana, what was that like? Man, you know, I was supposed to join Santana in, in 80, I think it was 86. Uh, Chester Thompson, the drummer, was working with him. So they had two Chester Thompsons in the band. He would play to play with Tower Power and the drummer that played with Genesis. You know, and Chester's from Baltimore. So I knew him very well. He recommended me for the gig, and they hired me. Uh, the management, I think Bob, uh, I think his name, big promoter too. Cavallo? So, huh? Cavallo? No, uh, he owned uh, uh, film. Now, Fillmore West and East. Big promoter. You know, he was the one that got them the, the Woodstock gig. Same kind of Woodstock. Not Bill Graham. Bill Graham. What was Bill Graham? <laughs> I, mean, I, you know, I can't believe I can't believe I can't remember these names all of a sudden. 
But Bill Graham called me himself and asked me to join the band. And I, I'm like, sure, I would play. And then they hired me. Before the week was out, they fired me. And I was still, I never got a chance to rehearse or do anything with it. Well, come to find out, uh, Santana didn't feel like rehearsing, and he hired, he found Graham Lear and hired him because Graham Lear knew the book. So they hired, fired me and hired Bill, uh, Graham Lear to play. And he just went by, and I'm working with John, uh, John McLaughlin, and we did the uh, mantra, and we had opened for Santana. And um, Santana, I think, uh, and I kind of remember him telling me, he saw me at the gig, you know, and and by the time I already had a name, a little name for myself, and he, uh, after the show was over with, he uh, uh, called me up and asked me to come to his room. So Joey D. Francesco and I went down to his room, walked in here. And we talked, man, we talked about everything, about life and religion and, you know, all kind of stuff, you know, Coltrane, and that's when I found out he, he loved Coltrane, and he loved uh, Miles, and all those guys, and we must have talked to the sun came up, until it was almost time to go, because I remember I, I had enough time to go to my room, open my suitcase up, and took one arm, and swiped everything into the suitcase, I didn't have time to pack it properly, and to get downstairs to, to make it out to the, to the bus. And uh, I told uh, Carla, I told John, and Joey and I, because you know, Joey was a little late. And I was like, well, you know, Joey and I was up at Carla's and we were talking about stuff. And, blah, 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 blah. and uh, like, uh, I think it was like two days later, I called my wife up and my wife told me that uh, uh, some guy named Kevin Chisholm had called from the Santana's office. And he wanted me to call him right away. I'm like, well, that's crazy. I, I just talked to Santana two nights ago. Actually, one night ago. And I, I'm, I'm like passing that off like, you know, maybe, you know, he was trying to get a hold of me before that, you know. And then he called back again at the house again, trying to get my, my phone number and where to call. So she called back and said, that guy called again and he wants you to call him. And he wants to call him immediately. So I called up Kevin, and now we're playing catching my mouse phone tag on the phone. And I finally got a hold of you know hold of him. And he says, "Hey buddy, how you doing?" I'm like, "Yeah, well, I'm doing fine. Man. What's up?" He goes like, "Well, Carlos wants you to join join the band." I'm like, "Okay, well, when?" He says, "Now." I was still on tour with McLaughlin. I'm like, what do you mean now? He says, no, right now. He might need to join the band right now. I'm like, well, I can't do that. I'm out on tour with McLaughlin. I just can't up and leave McLaughlin like that. He understood. And he says, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll tell Carlos. And, you know, maybe we'll do some work somewhere down the road later. I'm like, yeah, sure, but sorry. I, I, I can't walk out on my brother like that. And... Um, Years go by, I think two years go by, Supernatural came out. And um, the record blew up, of course, and um, Carlos decided he was going to take a year off. 
you know, just to rest up, you know, get a fresh start on a new supernatural tour. But they had started working prior uh, before he stopped. And they did a video where all the guys who performed on the record was also in this video. So um, he called me up, he called me up personally himself that day. He says, hey, hey, uh, how you doing, Mr. Chambers? Uh, this is uh, Carlos Santana. And at that time, I was, in fact, I was working, I was doing a, a clinic with Billy Sheila. And he called up and I talked to him. He was like, you know, how do you feel about coming out and do some recording for me? I'm like, yeah, sure, when? He told me, man, I'm like, yeah, check my books. I'm like, yeah, sure, I can, I can make it. And I was like, uh, well, hold on a second. I'm going to pass you the phone to another guy who, who idolized you. And I passed the phone to Billy. And Billy talked to him for a minute. And Carlos was gracious enough to talk to him. You know, he wasn't tripping. And Carlos, I mean, he's a real nice guy. You know, um, um, you know, you, you know, he talked to anybody, he talked to everybody. You know, that felt like there wasn't a threat to him. And um, and then uh, Billy, after Billy said what he had to say, he passed me back the phone. He said, well, "Okay, good. Well, I have management to call you uh, uh, tomorrow or day after tomorrow." And when we can figure out, you know, make sure that the recording time is going to be what it is, you know, I have management to call you and tell you, you know, exactly when and we'll get the tickets and, you know, get all the procedures rolling. So I went out to San Francisco. I found myself at the Fantasy Studios. And I'm looking like, wow, this is the great Fantasy Studio where Coltrane and everybody recorded, you know. And all this history at the beginning of Santana was recorded right here. You know, the beginning of uh, Journey was right here. All these things happened right here. And um, and then we uh, we were on a break, or somebody was doing something, maybe a bass, uh, Benny Garfield, maybe he had to do something with the bass, or somebody was doing a pass. And I'm out back smoking a cigar. I was smoking cigars back then. Carlos comes out. Hey, Mr. Chambers, how you doing? It's going to be great to have you in the in band, you know, for next year. And you know, I'm looking at him like, what are you talking about? Nobody got said anything to me about joining the band. Um, and I, I, I didn't say anything. I just looked at him like he was, he was talking Mars gibberish. And um, next thing I, I know, when he, he he's a couple of took a couple of hits off my cigar. He goes back into the room. And then Kevin comes out and he goes like, hey man, the um, gig is yours if you want it. And, uh, you know, Carlos really loves you. And uh, that's how I found out I was in the band. Um, and then I came in and, and I'm trying to figure out how to, to play with two great percussion players, Raul Recall and, and and try to make spaces for them to do what they did and have to stand on their toes. And yet they were doing the same thing for me. So, so again, we're trying to figure out how to make that work because I've never played with two percussionists before, especially as somebody of their greatness. You know, Ball was a phenomenal conga player. He was a phenomenal conga player. He died not long ago. And Carl Brazo was, yeah, was one of the greatest in ball players out there. Right? So, 
And here I am, like, sandwiched in between these guys. And they, they accepted it, you know, from day one. You know, they didn't, there was no trips, there was no, you know, none of that. They knew that, you know, I had a, 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 a unbelievable thing that I had to pull off because every day Carlos is throwing music at us. Even at the rehearsals, I mean, they gave me like two or three CDs of music. I think it was two CDs of music. I had to learn this stuff, and I'm learning it. And when I got the rehearsal, we didn't play none of it. <laughs> Carlos pulled out another CD, another CD that we had to learn. And I'm going like, oh my God. So now I got to like kind of get that other, you know, get this other thing out of my head that I learned and concentrate on this. And every day, it was like, you know, learning new stuff every day. Every gig, we were going over new music, some music we didn't play, some music we did play. And, um, and then if, it, if it's not that, then he would go over stuff of uh, 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 maybe somebody made a mistake, you know, in the song. Uh, and uh, we just want to make sure that was cleared up. But every day it was like a two two hour rehearsal, you know, maybe an hour and a half to two hour rehearsal before the gig. I thought it was unnecessary, but hey, he paid the bills. It was his band. So you know, I'm thinking um, you've played with so many guys and such a huge repertoire overall of tracks and songs. Do you kind of remember most of them in terms of what you did or what you want to do? Or if you have to play, say, something you did on um, a Schofield record 20 years ago, you'll just feel it today and go with what you feel now? Or do you try to remember and replicate what you did years ago? Yeah and no. I mean, you know, like, yeah, I, you know, like that. I remember, I remember sitting in with, with George Clinton uh, uh, one night. And I remember, but when I sat down behind the drums and they said this, what the song was, my, my mind is going back, like, you know, what was the beginning of the song? Because, again, when I left the band, I left that stuff, the last time I played it, I left it there. And now my mind is racing back on what song that was, who counted it off, and if, if there was a certain fill I had to play, go into it. I'm trying to remember. And... Uh, I counted it off, and, and I remember my, my hands like fell right into memory mode, where I start off the drum fill, the roof off the second, you know, and I'm playing, and and all of a sudden, you know, as I get to what are the, the key parts of the record, or of the of the arrangement, I remember what it was, but prior to it coming up, I couldn't remember what it was, but it was coming up. Yeah, it's like I, the hands just fell where they made. And I'm sitting there going, shoot, man, I made it through that one. But then, you know, I remember, you know, even with working with Schofield, where we did, uh, we had a reunion gig one time, not, a couple years back, uh, in New York. And uh, we had a rehearsal, but even at the rehearsal, my hands, you know, just came back to what those things were. Now, I may have played it differently, um, but then that was okay because every night we played that those songs, we played it differently. We just played it, make sure the arrangement was right. The same thing with people. 
probably from the deli. But we play those songs, we play the same songs every night. We never play them the same. When was the very last time you played with people? I think that was in 80, 86. Back then. It was um, after the, the, uh, uh, the uh, Saturday, night, Saturday Night Live did. Shortly after that, we did it. Like I said, we went to Germany. And that was the last time. And I think that was all in 86. We played 86. You played with both um, Victor Wooten and Stanley Clark. How do how do their styles differ? I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot. I was tempted to and ask you who's better, but uh, they're different, I guess. But how, how do they differ, those two? Well, I, you know, if it if it wasn't if it wasn't for Stanley Clark, there would be no Victor Wooten. Right. You know, if it wasn't for Larry Graham, there would be no Victor Wooten. There would be no Marcus Miller. And uh, it's not a question of who's better. It's like they're, they're both, they're both uh, uh, everybody has a certain way of doing things and they're all just as great. It's just that they just do things differently. Now, um, um, Victor came along a time, you know, where, you know, the base chair needed a shot in the arm, just like Stanley Clark when he came on the scene, the shot in the arm to the base players. You know, new, new blood to it. And same thing with Jocko. Jocko and Stanley came, you know, came out around about the same time almost. And uh, um, although Stanley has a, a bigger history of uh, playing playing with different bands, see, a lot of people don't know he was with Lifetime, and he was also with Art Blakey's band. And, you know, all these different bands. He was also in the same band with. A lot of people don't know that Tony Williams and Al Blakey had a band together. And Stanley was a part of that, you know. Um, Stan Getz band, you know. There was Stanley Chick and Tony Williams. So he played, you know, he did a lot. He did a lot more playing with different people than Jocko. Although, you know, that don't make Jocko no such, because Jocko definitely brought the bass to the front as well. Well, same thing with 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 uh, Victor Wooten and 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 because uh, Victor loves Stanley, he loves Stanley, he loves Marcus, he loves a lot of bass players, you know. Um, and Victor's more of a spiritual kind of guy. When you talk to him, you know, uh, he's got a great head on his shoulders. Um, I have never seen anything bother him, and yet he's leading these things right now. He's in Europe. You know, I talked to somebody this, this morning. He was in Europe uh, trying to finish up some things there, you know, with his brothers. And um, you mentioned, I don't think I've ever heard him say a bad word to, about anybody. I can't remember him saying a bad word about anybody. And both both he and Stanley and you were on Bootsy's most recent record. So although you didn't go back and play again with P-Funk, you were on projects by Bernie Worrell, uh, Bootsy, and Maceo, right? So you kind of kept in with those guys. Um, can you speak to those relationships or records at all? Well, I mean, you know, like, I, you know, I love Bernie. Bernie is a special soul. And, uh, I love Bootsy. Bootsy is just funny as well. I'll, I'll get out. Bootsy, Bootsy is, I mean, the guy is so funky. I mean, you would like, you know, you had to play with him. 
Bernie, you know, was like, I mean, I loved him, I mean, because he was another one of those, he, he was cut from a different mold. Uh, you know, Bernie, you know, when, when the Lord made Bernie, you know, he threw away, threw away the key, such as the same thing with George Duke. And, you know, there, there are people like that where, you know, Bootsy Collins is like that, where uh, when you're working with them, you know, it's another, it's a whole different thing there. Um, they hire you to come in and do what you know. They trust you to do what you do, and and and, and, they, and when they uh, like what they hear, they they show it. You know where they didn't have any egos. Where you know they like what they hear, and they uh, it, you know they they feel it on the inside, but they don't show no emotions on the outside. Um, like working, with, I remember working with George and Bootsy. Where I'm doing some things and 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 Bootsy's got this big smile. You can see all his teeth in his mouth, and he's like, "Yeah, Bubba," you know. He's going through that thing, and and he looked at me and he goes, "Like, you know, what's wrong?" And I'm like, "Well, I feel like I could do one one more. I think I got one more one more better." And he's looking at me. You sure? And I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Well, go on out there and do it." With somebody else, you know, like some guitar players I recorded with, the only thing they get is about themselves. When they got the take and they, they feel they got the better take that they can play over and they're going to keep that take. Now, however, by them keeping that take, that's, you know, like I got one day to record how many tracks where they spend a month on one song doing a solo. <laughs> you know, so, you know, they make sure their thing is, is perfect, but they, you know, like they didn't give a crap about your, your performance other than it's got to be right and it's got to feel good. You're going to have like one to, to six shots at it at, a, at, a take, uh, at each take. Well, you did a number of records under your own name. So did you turn the tables at all when your name was on the record? No. No. I had a great producer, Jim Beard. Jim is like a genius. And Jim turned the table, I think he turned the tables on all of us, you know, especially at the last record where, I mean, he was doing like uh, like 16 takes. And I went like, Jim, there's no way in the world you're going to sit there and listen to 16 takes of these songs. And uh, sure enough, he did, man. He sit there and listened to it, stuff, you know, walked his way through all of it. You know, and found the perfect take of you know of the best performance of me and and everybody else, and chose those takes. Yeah, it was like, man, I would get tired of doing takes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, what are you working on right now in terms of you know? I know you're touring so much. Are you still uh, in the studio or or recording studio cuts or? Uh, you know, the last thing I, I did was uh, was with Osnoy, and uh, he canceled uh, a week before the tour ended, and it was in Russia, um, you know, due to some things that was going on with him. And uh, so it allowed me to spend like four or five days at home, and I had to turn around and go to Paris and play at this, this, this thing called the Drummer's uh, uh, the drummer song, the, uh, the, the bag show. It was called the bag show. That's what it's called. The bag show. And I was on it there and not knowing I was going to be on it. 
as with Manu Kache and like very few others. And and I guess the reason why I was honored because of the work of uh, body of work that I've done that required me to be a legend player. Um, to work with all these great people and these great people, you know, back and forth across the fence. You put up a fence, you got your jazz side, you got your beat side, you got your Latin side, you got your, your pop side, and you got your rap side. So I did all of these things, you know, and did them well, um, as far as I know. <laughs> and um, um, so they honored me there. And, uh, Congratulations on that. Yeah. And uh, I came, you know, I came home and, and did tour that's Paris clinic it kind of just took its toll on my body you know because we were getting up at 4 30 in the morning to be downstairs at five or to leave the hotel at five thirty this is during every day including the day off which it was like by the time we get to the you know we get in the car we take a two and a half hour drive to our hotel to the airport and of course you know once we get to the airport you know what that's about that's man and then you find yourself getting to the gate and you get to the gate and the plane made you late. And um, to get to your final destination of airport, and then you got to get your luggage and then uh, uh, you, you get to the, the hotel from there. Or the hotel maybe another hour and a half to an hour or 40 minutes or maybe two hours drive. We do this every day. So by the time I get to the airport, I get to the hotel, it was a question that I sleep or eat. And I chose to sleep because I needed to sleep because I knew if I didn't sleep, I wouldn't I would be no good to anybody. And I figured, well, I'll eat later if I have to. And I lost a lot of weight, you know, by doing this, you know, by not eating. And by the time I got, you know, when I was able to eat, I couldn't eat because it's late night. And I refused to, you know, eat something, have something on my stomach late night, and and not being able to, like, you know, burn it off. And the cause of that, I, I, the result of that is like I lost a lot of weight. And it's like my arms, it's like I have no muscle tone here. Basically, oh, I got a little bit of muscle tone, but all this that I'm grabbing right now is just all flab, you know. And you know, my face had, had shrunk and all that stuff. It almost looked like the days when I when I had, uh, had my downfall. And people would look at me and go like, "Man, something's wrong with you." I'm like, "No, it's nothing wrong with me. I just need to, you know, I need to eat and gain gain some weight back." Mm-hmm. You know, but when I get back from this 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 next run, I'm definitely going to see a doctor, and make sure everything is on up and up. Because the last time I was in the hospital uh, last year. I think it was last year, maybe it was early this year, I can't remember. Because time is flying by so fast. Uh, I was in the hospital and I had no strength. I was losing, I had no strength at all, man. It was like, I remember getting to the airport in Baltimore, taking my suitcase out and put it on a uh, a, uh, a luggage stand or a uh, luggage stand. A cart. And I can see where its count is. And I, you know, like before I get there, I had to stop and rest a little bit. And then I would walk it straight up to the counter. Or by the time I get to the counter, it felt like my heart was in my, in my throat. So I knew something was wrong. Well, 
I, I made a deal with the Lord. If you let me, you know, get through this Japan tour and I get back, I'll go see a doctor. Well, thank God I did because I remember I, I saw my doctor on a Friday. Um, Saturday morning, about 6.30, 6, uh, 6 something in the morning, she called my wife up and scared her out of, out of, out of herself. And she woke me up and said, she's a doctor on the phone. She needs to talk to you. And I get on the phone, I'm like halfway asleep, halfway awake. She says, Mr. Chambers, you need to get to the hospital right now. And um, I'm like, well, what is this about? She says, don't have no time to explain it, just get to the hospital. So I got my clothes on, my teeth, got my clothes on. And my wife, uh, I got in the car, my wife told me to the hospital. And come to find out, I had no red blood cells in my body. No red blood cells? That's why, I didn't, you know, because I had, it was like, I, I you know, they, uh, I forgot what level they called it. So that's anemia? Doc- is that what that is? It's what now? Anemia? Yeah, I had some of that, but, you know, but my the blood cells were so low. They tried to figure. They tried to figure out did I walk in or did I, or did I took a, a wheelchair? I told them I walked in. They were trying to figure out how did I walk in, mm. and and when they even so when they stuck the needle in, I remember hearing a snap sound, and a little bit of blood went into the vial. You know about that much, and they couldn't get any more blood. So then they figured they had the wrong, you know, wrong vein or something. They kept sticking me trying to get blood, and they couldn't get blood because I had none. And I'm going like, if they read the chart, if they see that, you know, I had a problem with no blood, I need whatever I got in me, I'm going to need it till I get upstairs, you know. And um, so I get upstairs to run all these tests on me. Um, then they, uh, my stomach had swelled up. And then they, they drained about six liters of fluid, six liters of fluid off my stomach. Yet um, they couldn't figure out what's going on. You're like, how? I had six liters of fluid on my stuff in my stomach, and how come I don't have any red blood cells? And then they try to figure out, like, you know, the, the, was there any difference uh, in the stool set, the stool when you go to the bathroom? Like, no, I, I didn't see any difference. You know, there was no redness or no, I wasn't bleeding from down there. And they're trying to, they, they left them with, the, they're scratching their heads. So, knowing that I, I have some kind of history, weird history with, with my body right now, when I come back off this tour, I'm going to go see my doctor to make sure that uh, the weight loss is not uh, what it was when I first had my first downfall, because I had lost so much weight that my, my system had flipped. Where um, if I would like, if I would not, if I missed two meals, I would lose a half a pound every day. You know. But and they they still they never said what was wrong. They could not. They didn't know what it was. Right to this day, they never figured out what it was. At least I never got any. They never called me and told me. And I checked with my the last time I checked with my doctor, I asked about it. She said, "Yeah, they never told him what it was." So she checked with them, and they, they, they were like, they were clueless. Wow. Well, take care of yourself, Dennis. I try to. 
Yeah, I mean, we want you pounding those drums for many more years. You know, I mean, if not that, at least still with us to tell all those great stories. Lucy always asks me when I'm going to write a book. But then I look, I listen to his stories. I'm like, you should write a book. And everybody that played this music should write a book. Because, I mean, especially Mason Parker and 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 uh, and, and uh, Mudbone Cooper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they kept me laughing. Well, I've been wanting uh, to get both of them on, but Mudbone, now I want to pursue even more after I see you with those grins about his stories. So, um, yeah. What, um, so you're going out uh, tomorrow with, you're playing with Jeff Larber and um, Haslip, and does that aggregate have a name or it's just you guys playing together? No, it's just called the Jeff Lover Meister and Jeff Lover Band. Okay. Yeah. Jeff Meister and Jeff Lover Tour. How can people keep up with, with what Dennis Chambers is up to? Well, I mean, since I'm not a big fan of Facebook, you can't get me there unless somebody else put it in there. Uh, you can always go to DennisChambers.com, go to my website and see what's going on there. Very good. I have one more question for you that hopefully the tech will hold up for you to answer. And that was, uh, if you look back on this great, great musical history that you carved out for yourself, is there anything in particular that you're most proud of? Yeah, I mean, you know, working with the Buddy Rich Big Band, that meant a lot to me uh, to do that. And uh, uh, the way they accepted me when I did it, you know, the first time I did it was with, Steve Gadd, Vinnie Caliuta, uh, the great Dave Belson, who uh, I ended up, you know, becoming really tight with, and uh, and and learning that, that he's not one of those kind of guys who had a heart of gold. Um, he didn't look at at, at uh, like who was better than who, and um, then it, he taught me like there's no there's no best drummer. It's like the guy, everybody had their own special way of saying the same thing. They just made it, you know, their own. And uh, he came out every time I was near him, he was always coming out. He was very supportive. You know, and, uh, man, I, I learned a lot. I mean, I remember him telling me one day, he says, he says, Denny, he used to call me Denny. Denny, you know, um, once you close your ears, that's when you stop learning. And what he was saying was, once you close your ears, when you're not listening to any or any drummer um, or or anybody else, then you need to stop playing. And I'm a big fan of of, of musicians. I'm a big fan of drummers, and especially if somebody's got something to say. You know, like Steve Gadd, I was you know big fan of his. Uh, big fan of Vinnie Caliuta, big fan of Marvin Smitty Smith, uh, big fan of uh, Gary Husband, uh, Little Mike Mitchell, you know, these are the new guys, that's what I'm saying. Little Mike Mitchell and, uh, um, uh, Jesus, there's a lot of new, new guys, new talent, Spud. Uh, oh, man, there's so many, you know. And, and and it kind of surprised them because they think that I don't listen. I'm not listening to you know these guys. And then when I see them, I know exactly who they are. 
and that's shocking because you know welcome you know you know if, if I meet them for the first time I throw both my hands up or up in the air and I give a big hug and they're shocked you know like they didn't think I was listening but I am listening. That's the good thing about YouTube. That's one good thing about YouTube. You get to hear, you know, new talent. You know, some of it is hard to watch, and some of it is some great things. Great things coming out of some of these young players. I was thinking about earlier when we first started talking, and you were saying you were playing at four and six years old. If YouTube was around then, you might have gone viral with, uh, you know, how you were playing at such a young age. Yeah. 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 I have to tell you this, you know, uh, quiet as it's kept, but I, I, I did a tour with the Jacksons one time. This was like 1980. I think it was 1980. And, you know, we were swore never to talk about it. In fact, we had to sign these uh, documents that Joe Jackson proposed to us. And um, I can talk about it now because if there's a video of uh, uh, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, you find the right one, you can see me playing drums back there. Hmm. Yeah. I'll have to look for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was great. I mean, it's such an honor to play, play a good thing. And to meet Michael and get a chance to know him a little bit. And the guy, he was misunderstood, I thought. Um, a lot of people look at him, you know, you know, they see his age, they knew his age. And they couldn't figure out why he's playing with kids. Well, I remember him telling us that the reason why he loved kids so much is because they were so honest. You know, they're not if they see something weird wrong with your face, they're gonna ask you what, what's going on with your face. Where a grown up would not say anything and let you walk around, you know, with uh, you know, like a booger hanging out of your nose. Mm -hmm. They won't say nothing, you know. But a kid goes like, What's that hanging out of your nose? you know? And only the kids didn't want anything. The only thing they want is your love and your time and to have fun. Where, you know, when you become a superstar, the grown-ups, the only thing they care about is what can they get out of you. Mm -hmm. So he didn't know who to trust other than kids. He couldn't trust any grown-ups that, that much, except for the ones that were around him that he developed some kind of friendship with, like his bodyguards and stuff like that. Um, and, um, you know, especially friends like Elizabeth Taylor that was around him at the time and, and made, made sure they got him to seek help when he needed it. And I'll leave that where it knows. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I remember, uh, one incident where, or incident, incident where he went to a school uh, dressed as, uh, uh, he put an outfit on when you couldn't recognize him. He did, he did his face and had a wig on, and, you know, like all that long hair, you know, became very, you know, he had like an afro or something, or a small afro, he had a hat on. And he waited till the kids came out. And he was walking, when the bell rang, kids were running, like, ah, he's all happy. And he's going by them, he's, he's, he's like touching them, they're touching their shoulders as he's walking up towards the school. But for him, it was just that he was connecting himself as a kid. 
And I remember him saying, it's like, you know, he said, try to imagine, you know, like you're a kid and you never, you look out the window and you couldn't go out and play. So he never, he never had a child, you know, kid's life. And, and he was all, the only thing he knew about, the only thing he remembered is all this hard work he had to put into it, like all the practicing with his family, with his brothers, rehearsing, 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 and, and seeing all the crazy stuff that if people didn't get it, you know, what Joe would do to them, and um, which was crazy. But uh, I remember, you know, one rehearsal, maybe two rehearsals, when Joe would come in the room, Michael would like, like leave the stage, you know, found out he was in the bathroom throwing up. You know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it was, it was a weird thing. But Joe was just, there was something weird with him. It's like, you know, I remember, I, you know, when I look at him, I get the chills. The way he looked at you, it was like, man, you know, there's something, something about this guy's not right, you know. Just like when, when Michael died, you know, he's laying there in the coffin, and his father's out there promoting a record company. Mm. He was his number one, I mean, his son, his very famous son is in, in a, like a gold or a silver coffin, I think it was a gold coffin, laying in the inside of the building, and he's out there promoting, you know, you know promoting a, 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 a He's laying there promoting a, a, a company. It just didn't make any sense. Yeah, man. Incredible generational talent and tragic story, for sure. Yeah. But, that's, um, that's what it was, you know. It was just, it was just weird. You, you just cut in a different mold, I guess. Well, thanks for sharing that, too. Um, throwing that in. And thanks for recounting everything, Dennis. I mean, all the P-Funk stuff and the jazz stuff and um, much appreciate the music you've given to all of us on behalf of all the viewers and listeners. Much gratitude. Thank you for having me, man. Hey, back at Truth and Rhythm headquarters. Thank you for joining us on another magical ride with Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Be sure to subscribe. Go to YouTube. Go to the Funkin' Stuff channel. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives. Also, goodies here like TIR Quick Takes. And if you subscribe, you know what? You get the show before anyone else. It's free. If you love jazz, funk, R&B, soul, you can't miss it. Pass it along. Tell a friend. Tell family. This audience is growing, and it is a beautiful thing. All coming together for the love of this great music. Also, if you can throw us a buck or two, we could use the support financially, keeping the lights on, keeping the servers going, all these expenses. If you can help support the program, whatever you can give, much appreciated. Go to the FunkinStuff.net website. And on the right-hand side of every page, you just click and you can donate through PayPal, credit card, whatever. Very easy to do and so much appreciated. And if you do a sizable donation, I will mention you on the program. Also, drop me a line. Email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about the music. Let's just kibitz and uh, talk about stuff, you know, talk music. You'll find that I respond very quickly, and I much enjoy the uh, 
rapport and the camaraderie and the interaction. Always remember, this is your show, The True Music Lover. So for now, that's all the time we have for this one. It's a wrap. As always, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>